It has officially started. That's right. Welcome to Stop Sound Market effects. Live. We're back. We're back. We came to give the people what they need. We came to deliver. We obviously missed you all last week. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Welcome to Stock Market Live. I'm Daniel Snyder, and I'm joined today by Austin Hankwitz. As always, Austin, what's new with you? What's up, man? I'm pumped to be back here. Missed everyone last week. I'm glad that you're feeling better. Jury duty's out the window. We're not doing any of that stuff. We're not doing Jury coronavirus stuff. Man, I had the Rona. The I had market. the Rona. Have you had the Rona recently? I so you know, knock on wood. I'm not on my wood desk right now. I've yet to ever come down with uh, the nasty coronavirus. I've never got Dude, sick from it. Let me tell you, it knocked me out. The first 48 hours are like the worst. Right? He's talking like fever, steady fever, the shakes, the cold, the the soreness, exhaustion, like headaches nonstop. You mention it, I had it. Like the only thing I didn't have though was the loss of taste or smell. But I was laying there and I was just like, man, how did people do this for two weeks or a month or be on ventilators. So luckily we're not there anymore. Obviously I'm feeling a lot better, a little groggy still, but we're getting through it. Um, everybody has come today because we have promised and we will deliver. We are going to break down what the heck is going on with Disney and why I love Disney stock and why you should too. Um, why don't you, uh, Austin, I know you got a few notes. Obviously Disney yeah. had earnings last week. Mm -hmm. You have some thoughts on it. Why don't you share with like, what kind of piqued your interest with Disney at this moment in time. Yeah, let's do it, man. So Disney, right? I, I remember kind of if we, we, we rewind now a couple of years, I'll never forget. I was at the local Publix and I looked out on my Robinhood app. I was in college and my stock in Disney skyrocketed. And I was like, what the hell's going on with Disney? And that's when they announced Disney Plus, right? And everyone was like, oh, we got Disney Plus, the subscription, the margins, all these cool things. Like, oh, you know, Netflix, they'll, you know, they'll continue and Disney will never be able to overcome Netflix and the content and streaming. Wow. Absolutely. Just completely different scenario now. Right. So let's, let's dive in deep into Disney earnings that had happened uh, last week. Right. So Disney stock is up about 35% since their mid June lows. The company reported earnings last week, which was met with a flurry of these positive headlines, specifically this Disney now has more subscribers than Netflix headline that everyone's been talking about. So let's uh, spend some time walking through, uh, you know, their theme park business as sort of an update on like travel demand that we've seen also from like Uber and, and Airbnb. I'm sure you guys heard from, I think two or three weeks ago, we talked about both those companies uh, and then round things off with what's been new with their streaming business. So, you know, just the other week, we heard from the likes of Uber and Airbnb, which were two companies that in my opinion, and I think Daniel would agree with me that are some of the biggest gauges on travel demand, right? And they crushed it. Uber, I'm sorry, Airbnb exceeded 103 million nights and experiences booked, largest quarterly number ever. Revenue and bookings were up like 73% uh, above pre-pandemic levels. Uh, best part was both these companies reaffirmed their guidance. Uber delivered a similar story. 11, 111 billion run rate, right? Like travels popping. These companies were excited. Everything was going good. So how about Disney? Did they experience something similar? Absolutely, right? So some big call-outs. Um, all their theme parks are now open. Demand continues to move in the right direction, despite you know, cruise ships not being fully operational yet. I think there was uh, something recently that just had like a main voyage. Maybe Daniel has more on that. Mm -hmm. um, 
But you know, this isn't just domestic, international, right? Paris Park per capita spending is up 30% above pre-pandemic levels, right? So park demand is, is there. Uh, they're also optimizing for these parks too. So despite the attendance like being just a little bit below those, those pre-pandemic levels, like from remember this is attendance, the levels, uh, you know, we the company has been able to deliver higher revenue and operating income over the same period of time. So per capita spending is up 40% above pre-pandemic and occupancy is around that 90%. So despite not having the attendance back to where it was, they're making more money. So they're optimizing, business is thriving, they're doing good stuff from the parks. Now to the interesting stuff with streaming. So they reported 152.1 uh, million global paid subscribers during the quarter. They netted, a, uh, I'm sorry, 14.4 million new subscribers this quarter, of which 6 million were these core Disney Plus subscribers and the other 8 million or so were these Disney Plus Hotstar subscribers. They got it to about 135 to 165 million uh, Disney Plus and uh, Disney Plus core subscribers and 80 million Disney Plus Hotstar hot subscribers by the end of next year, which I feel like that 30 million swing is kind of just like funny to me. Like that's so many people that are just kind of yeah. like, yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, but they're, they're confident in the business segment and that, that it will flip profitable sometime next year, leading into a steady state of original content, premium entertainment, launching an ad-supported tier and new pricing structure. So now to me, Daniel, here's the fun part as I'm reading through these earnings reports. Thinking about not only how many new subscribers Disney Plus is going to have, both Core and Hotstar, but how much more money they can begin making on those subscribers from these price increases and, and, and sort of you know monetizing more in these different areas around the world. So think about Hotstar for, uh, for, for a moment. Uh, Hotstar, if you guys don't know, this is their like Indian, Southeast Asian country uh, offering. They increased monthly revenue from uh, 54% from 78 cents a month to $1.20 a month over you know year over year, which is crazy, right? And, and to think like, okay, $1.20, like that doesn't sound a lot of, like a lot of money. Well, you're right. It's not because Netflix is able to charge $8.83 a month for the exact same people. Like, like these people are paying Netflix $8.83, but they're only paying Disney $1.20. That leaves a lot of upside for Disney. And I'm not saying Disney is going to just like, you know, come get that price point next year or even the year after. But like, if they're able to eventually like get there, that's another 5 billion a year in revenue just on their existing subscriber base on Hotstar, which is so, so cool. And now we think about the ad supported here, right? We heard about, you know, pricing changes. They're doing this ad thing. They're going to have like things it's like Disney um, plus like uh, premium and like other different things like that. So they've learned a lot from Hulu, right? As everyone knows, Disney owns Hulu. Hulu, I, Hulu is actually how I get almost my all of Hulu, right? Almost all of Hulu. Okay. Yeah. My, uh, my, my mistake. Um, but, but regardless, that, that's how I get my TV and I'm watching ads left and right. It's really frustrating, <laughs> but it's true. Uh, they have all the advertisers lined up who are buying slots on Hulu to now flip into, you know, Disney plus it's a, rep a recipe for success. Um, they know what works well and they know by doing this, I'm sure their, uh, average revenue per user is going to increase dramatically. And I, you know, I'm saying it now, I'm, I'm really excited to see what Disney turns into. I'm a Disney bull as of this last earnings. I'm not yet to like, this is the first time I'm really like diving deep into the company and better understand these things and I'm pumped. So I know that was a lot of stuff for all of you people to chime in on. I'm sure you're thinking, and by the way, I don't know if Daniel mentioned, like if you have any yeah. feedback, any questions, real-time chat, right? We're always looking at the questions. We're looking at the feedback. We'd love to engage with you guys. Maybe I misspoke. Maybe I said something that piqued your interest. Drop it in the chat anywhere you're watching this. Um, so Daniel, that's my perspective, man. That's the breakdown of the travel. Really cool to see that. And that's also the uh, kind of um, momentum they're seeing on the, on the streaming side.
Yeah. And also just as Austin, Austin mentioned as well, um, everybody that's joining us today, thanks. We want you to get in the chat. So I'm going to ask you a question. I would love for you to respond. Have you ever owned Disney stock? Let us know whether you're watching on social media, whether you're in the Zoom with us. I mean, we got Dave, we got Charlie, we got Anna, we got Amir, we got Alfonso, we got Alexander, we got Norm, we got everybody joining today with us right now. And then also, I don't know if you guys saw Brad Thomas popped on screen for a hot second. We're going to get back in conversation with him here in a little bit about real estate investment trusts and what he's looking at in this market right now with everything that's going on. Um, but let's go back to Disney. Alfonso says, no, he has not owned Disney stock. Um, which I want to share real quick. I mean, I don't know if you know about this, but Seeking Alpha offers a newsletter for like premium subscribers and everything where it's called Catalyst Watch. And I have a personal investing story with Disney, which actually I told you a little bit before we got started was I was able to afford my house. The, the entire down payment of my house was because of a Disney trade that I had. I mean, I, I am long-term bullish on this company, full disclosure, I don't own any right now. I don't own any stock right now in Disney. Um, but I've also worked with the company twice. So back in college, I went to University of Central Florida, go Knights, and living in Orlando, everybody works at a theme park. So what I did as a poor college student was I applied to Universal and I applied to Disney and I said, whoever got to me first got me pretty much, right? So I ended up working at Walt Disney World, worked there for about two years uh, as a character performer, got to experience the people, the guests that come to these theme parks, they are so dedicated, right? The, the, the amount of money that people spend at this theme park is just ungodly, right? Like, and we're talking about this international circuit of people from China and Japan and Korea and uh, Europe. Everybody comes to the States to go to Walt Disney World. I mean, it is like, it is a place that I don't know if you've been, I'm sure maybe you have. It feels like a rite of passage, right? And I also remember... Um, you know, I've got three nephews through my sister and she was telling me that when you have a kid, it almost feels like a rite of passage that you have to take your kids to the theme parks, right? So when you, when you talk about Disney and you talk about this company that is just so grand and has such an international presence and they're just a money-making machine, as you were just laying out the case for, you know, you got the Disney plus, you got the direct line to consumer, you've got the, the theme parks on, what is it? Seven, eight theme parks around the world now. Um, and they haven't fully reopened international travel yet. Like think about Epcot just started the guardians of the galaxy ride. Tons of people are going to flock there for that. When they flock there, they're spending tens of thousands of dollars to go on these trips. I mean, you're talking about family, if they're staying at the resort, if they're buying merchandise, if they're going uh, for a week long trip to Disney, you're dropping tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, this is reoccurring revenue. This is the moat that Disney has because the IP that they own and the content they create and the stories of how they bring people and just make you feel good, right? They, they tell the human stories, they do it through so many different factors. Um, I mean, the, the company is a powerhouse. So I wanted to bring some information to the table. So real quick, the story behind my trade was back, uh, it was probably about two years ago. Um, it was before, I don't know if you remember this, they did the big, big investor day, um, which Seeking Alpha had highlighted to me through the Catalyst Watch, which is why I bring it up. And they, so pretty much what Catalyst Watch is, it tells you what to watch, watch for in the week ahead. So as I'm looking at Catalyst Watch, I go, oh, Disney Investor Day event's coming up. So I started looking at the stock, did a little bit of technical analysis. Also, I mean, you got to remember, this was in the middle of COVID, right? Theme parks were shut down, but direct-to-consumer and Disney Plus was launching, and it was just 
going crazy. The street loved it. The subscribers were coming in. Um, and it was such a cheap rate that people could afford. And it was just like, it was so brilliant, a brilliant time to launch. And uh, having worked at not only Disney World, but then also living in Los Angeles and working at the actual content creating machine area in Culver City and Burbank and Glendale and working on those campuses and just kind of being like, this is a company you don't bet against. Management and Bob, uh, Bob after Bob, right? Every CEO is Bob. Um, obviously, Bob Chapek now, um, but before it was Bob Iger. Um, yep, the guy yep. just like, they know how to create content. Right. And I knew with the direct to consumer coming up, I, I was like, the catalyst is easy. It makes so much sense to me. They're going to have to release so much content for the years ahead. And so the, the trade was simple. It was almost like an arb trade where it's just like, they're going to announce all of this Marvel, all of this animation, I, like the street's going to love it. It was like the easiest thing is like one of those moments where you just have the light bulb and you're like, this is it. And so I played the option trade, man. I bought the calls. I led that investor day. I don't know if you remember, if you go back and look at it, it was like November, no, December, December, 2020. You can go back and still see that massive gap up on the stock price that day. And man, when I sold at the open, I just looked at my wife and I was like, you're not going to believe this. And it was like, this, ever since that moment, I'm like, that's why I love Disney stock, but I love it because I love the company and the management is so smart. And I want to get into this a little bit. So Josh is in the back with us today. I pulled some graphics from Seeking Alpha. We've done, I want to dive into the Dan Loeb real quick um, and his letter that he sent to the board and the management. Um, Josh, why don't you go ahead and throw up the slides for me? We'll go through this. Obviously, we're going to start with the Seeking Alpha rating summary. This is something that we always go back to. Seeking Alpha authors are a buy on the stock. Wall Street has a buy on the stock. The quant has a hold on the stock. And some people will maybe, okay, why does the quant have a hold? I've got ideas, but obviously the quant is a computer system human bias outside of it. So we respect the quant. Just wanted to highlight to everybody that the quant is a hold on Disney stock at this time. Josh, let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> and we'll get a quick look over the, the factor grades. So obviously it's a D minus on valuation, which stands out to me. And I'm like, okay, well, if that wasn't a D minus, that's probably what would switch the quant system over to a buy. So that's something that I'm keeping my eyes on. Growth is obviously A, profitability is an A. I mean, they make so much money, just like you were talking about. Momentum of the stock price has been back on the upswing from June lows, as everybody knows with the market and how we've been watching it. And revisions of the earnings are at a C plus because of the mixed analysts out there. So I wanted to take a deeper look at the valuation and see what was going on. So if you can go to the next slide, Josh. So we went into the valuation. We started looking at, okay, well, the PE, the you know enterprise value to EBITDA, price of book, price to cash flow. Um, you got to remember this company took on a lot of debt when COVID hit and, you know, they have, I think it's close to $50 billion in debt of the most recent quarter, um, which obviously investors like myself would love to see them kind of pay down a little bit, which I'm sure they will over time because their bets are massively paying off with DTC direct to consumer play. Um, so the numbers are a little ele elevated, right? Look at the PE, for instance, even the trailing 12 months is at 34.4. The five-year average for the company is about 25. So a little elevated, but they've been in growth mode. They obviously had a huge um, direct hit to their entire theme park business during COVID. It makes complete sense to me, but they've gotten through all the parks back open, like you said, um, and now they're, they're turning the ship around. And uh, also not to mention, I mean, this company is the powerhouse at creating IP and content, right? So go to the next oh, slide, yeah. Josh. Here's some films that everybody just got to remember. These are coming up soon, right? 
So you got a few things. I mean, the ones on the left, you'll see are from the in-house Disney Pixar, Disney Animation, um, and their other internal Disney uh, filmmaking arms. Um, obviously, Avatar is coming up. That was from the Fox acquisition. You got the Black Panther, Wakanda Forever coming up in November. Hocus I mean, Pocus 2. Hocus Pocus 2. The one I will say, I will say don't really expect Haunted Mansion. I mean, this is a company that has been trying to make a new Haunted Mansion movie for years internally. Mm -hmm. It was just always in discussion. Everybody wants to create the new Haunted Mansion movie. It never gets made. So the Hocus Pocus 2, I will say yes. Um, Pinocchio is also going to be an interesting one. I think this one has Tom Hanks, if I remember right. Um, but also, this is not the... Uh, there's another Pinocchio movie coming out as well from Guillermo del Toro, um, which he did, I think, with Netflix. And they're releasing about a month apart. So it's going to be interesting to see Ooh. what happens with these Pinocchio, or sorry, a few months apart. This one, I think, is in December. I think Disney's doing a release in December, and I think Netflix is doing maybe September. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens between those two. Um, obviously, Pinocchio is now a public domain, so they can both do this and get away with it. Disney doesn't own the IP to Pinocchio. Uh, like they do with a lot of the other things. Um, so anyways, let's keep moving forward. So I was looking at Disney's earnings, as you were as well. And I don't know, everybody kind of saw this headline, right? Dan Loeb, third point, decided he wanted to buy a significant stake in Disney. He owns like a million shares. And then we wrote that he apparently acquired a bunch more. We don't know what the exact number is. Um, and he put together five points that he shared with the company that he said, this is how I see management being able to move forward with unlocking value for investors. And we're just going to run through this because I do want to get to Brad Thomas and REITs. Um, cost cutting, obviously, they're working on it, right? They're cutting costs around the entire department. They need to pay down their debt. We all understand that. Obviously, they're doing it already. I don't know why he included this in his letter. Let's go to the next one, Josh. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's if like, it hey, just like, you know, cut your costs. Like, you're it's doing, like okay, yeah. thanks for the advice, bro. Like, <laughs> It's exactly, it's business 101, right? Like, cut your costs. Um, the second point he said is the dividend policy. So I don't, div, Disney used to pay a dividend. Obviously, they cut the dividend during COVID to keep cash within the company. He is saying pretty much it's like, hey, don't go back to paying the dividend. Take all that dividend money, reinvest it, pay down your debt. Um push, you know, the, the new rights of sports and market and, you know, expand in the company and, and pretty much just more content creation and keep people paying for Disney plus Disney plus Hotstar, that sort of thing. So obviously I kind of agree with this right now. I don't think they need to pay a dividend right now. I think if they can get into a better stabilized point, like they were pre COVID, then once you get to that point, they'll be able to flip that switch back on and get the dividend going again for investors, which will be a nice catalyst if you own the shares of stock. Uh, all right. Next one, Josh. <clears throat> Number three, this one is interesting. And this is why I'm, when you were talking about Hulu, um, I wanted to make sure that, you know, everybody understood that they don't completely own Hulu yet. So Hulu was a, boy, uh, a joint venture started by a bunch of different studios back in the day. Disney was in it. Fox was in it. Um, Comcast is still in it. So they still have their piece of it right now. Um, and that's what we're currently waiting for until the end of 20, uh, deadline in early 2024 when Comcast is supposed to sell their last stake in Hulu and then Disney will own it outright. Um, I do want everybody to remember though, that once, once Comcast leaves Hulu, you'll most likely see all of their shows and IP go over to Peacock and they're going to double down on that. So keep that in mind. 
But when Hulu does eventually get integrated with Disney Plus, um, that'll be interesting because right now they're making additional revenue streams and they're getting like 80 something dollars of revenue per user from Hulu. Um, if you inter integrate that into Disney Plus, you're obviously going to raise Disney Plus prices. So I don't know if they'll actually do that. I think it'll be an interesting thing to watch for the stock and the company, but they don't own all of Hulu yet. Hulu yet. They will. And then how, what they do with Hulu is something that'll be interesting to watch for shareholders uh, next year or two years from now. Sorry. Unless yeah, they right. paid. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think, uh, you know, as someone who has Hulu, but not Disney plus, but I did just get Peacock because, or maybe it was Paramount plus. I take that back. I got Paramount plus because our girlfriend wanted to watch Zoe 101. I don't know if you remember that show back mm, then. Throwback. But, um, yeah, throwback. But to me, it's like, I don't see Hulu. I mean, I guess like I could see the perspective of like combining Hulu and Disney Plus and kind of having them be like, you know, this this cool thing together. But I really see Hulu as as sort of the separate live TV, live sports, like, you know, just how I'm how I'm consuming live content. Then on the other side, I see who I'm sorry, uh, Disney Plus as like a, a Netflix vibe where it's like, here's why I see some original content, maybe some old movies. Like, I just I love separating the two of those things. Um, I don't really I don't know, I, I it would be interesting to see if, if they did come together, how they'd be able to separate them internally inside that same app. But it'll be uh, something I'll definitely keep my eye on. Yeah. Um, Carlton on Facebook says always hesitant to purchase Disney kind of curious, Carlton, why do you why are you hesitant? On purchasing Disney stock, let us know. Love to love to get your insights on that. Um, all right, let's keep going. So, Josh, number four from the Dan Loeb letter to management, ESPN. This one is controversial, right? I don't believe that they should spin off ESPN. That is just me, in my opinion, right? These are all opinions that we're sharing. Um, my opinion is that ESPN actually works better within the Disney model. Um, and if you go back, I don't know, obviously, all the contract deals, but back when you had cable packages, ESPN was one of those channels that was able to command such a high payment of fee from um, all the cable companies. It used to be it used to be something like you get 500 channels, right? A thousand channels, whatever it might be. Each channel got a sliver of a payout. ESPN's payout was like it used to be like six dollars a household which was extremely high when you're talking about channels that maybe got 30 cents per household, right? They, they definitely have that ability to command such large value because they are paying billions and billions and billions of dollars for all these sports deals. Um, but then we also saw the news about how Disney decided to step away from uh, the Disney cricket deal that just happened over in India. So um, I think ESPN plays personally better within Disney I get what he's trying to do here with the unlock of value. It sounds like a strictly old active investor kind of play. Um, I would hate to see personally Disney do this, but if they do it, it also wouldn't surprise me because they're being pushed. And now obviously Dan Loeb also wants board seats and everything else. Hence the next part, go to the next slide, Josh. <clears throat> and he wants a board refresh, <laughs> right? Which makes like, of course he does, because he yeah, wants cut to... your costs and, and hire new people, get them on the board. It's like, oh, thanks, man. You know, <laughs> he's talking his book. Right. And also, if, I think it was broken down actually by Bob JPEG, where he's like the tenure of our board. Like nobody's been on the board longer, I think, than four years at this point. Like the board is not old. The board isn't like an old way of thinking. Like they're changing all of. I don't know, man. Dan Lowe, I'm just like this one could have been left without. I think he's just trying to get his board seats. Makes total sense, especially if you're trying to do the active investor play. He's talking his book. He has his plan. He wants to see his plan implemented. But also, 
from what I've seen in the news, I mean, he hasn't done any more filings. It's not like he's trying to be Warren Buffett and buying 20% of Oxy. So he's going to have to play ball in sports world. Right. Um, I don't, I don't know if they'll really engage with him on this level, but we'll see what happens with that. So going forward, that's the Dan Loeb letter. Now you're caught up. Um, Josh, let's run through these next ones. A few things I wanted to point out for everybody as we're looking at the stock for next year, obviously they're opening their annual pass again. This is the theme park play. It sold out like instantly last time they're increasing costs because they have a moat, they have pricing power. I mean, this company does it over and over again. Um, obviously you see the prices there, huge, huge couple hundred increase. I mean, that's, that's massive. You think it's going to stop there? I don't think it's going to stop there. All right. No next way. slide, Josh. <clears throat> This is pulled directly from their earnings report. I just wanted to point out, you know, obviously the nine months ended on the right side. That is because their fiscal year ends in September and not December, like most companies. Quarter end, obviously, if you look at like just Disney parks experiences and products, the theme park division, I mean, Bob Chapek pretty much built that theme park division, division before he became CEO. Um, the guy just massively has created those things into a cash cow. Like, dude, they just, they, they breed money. Um, all right, next slide. <clears throat> and going off what you were talking about, Disney Plus obviously starting to raise their prices. Um, and I don't know if you knew this. I was actually looking it up. Netflix since 2011 has had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, almost eight price increases Jeez. for their streaming service since 2011. This is Disney's first. Keep that in mind. This is Disney's first price increase. And they're doing the low uh, ad-supported tier. Um, obviously they're going to command so much money. They sold out of the, the media upfronts in New York the other month. Um, they, they charge just an incredibly high CPM. They are industry leading in this regard. They are going to be making so much money off of this. Obviously one of the smartest things they ever did was buy BAM tech and turn it into Disney plus in that platform. Um, the company is just, they're, they're brilliant. They're brilliant. And then I wanted to end real quick, one more slide, Josh, and then we'll get over to Brad. I'd like to, I'd like to bring a little technical analysis to play, right? So obviously we saw the high of Disney back there, uh, beginning of the year. Um, I yeah, I believe that's the beginning of the year, 187.58. That was, you know, euphoria across the market. They had all their subscribers. Obviously there's a huge miss. You see the gaps here, give you a little bit of TA knowledge is 80% of the time gaps fill on the charts. So something interesting to keep at. I'm also a big fan of Fibonacci. So you'll see my Fibonacci retracement levels here. Um, 150, 150.39. That's the level I'm gonna watch for. Obviously, there is the gap below the market, so I might be expecting that to fill before it goes higher. Um, the catalyst for the fundamentals. I mean, world reopens. It, recession might hurt this company with the theme parks again. Got to keep that in mind, especially as we're seeing the numbers of people are spending more money on credit cards, savings mm -hmm. accounts are getting dwindled. Um, so there might be a little bit of fluctuation and volatility to the downside is what I would expect before seeing it go, uh, continue the, the move to the bullish uh, buy side, um, or sorry, to the, the upside. And uh, I think, you know, within a couple of years, as Disney Plus continues to be integrated, especially with 2024, we're seeing massive amounts of subscribers and that, that will just have such a huge gross profit margin on that specific department. Um, that I don't see how they don't eventually go back to paying a dividend. I mean, they're just going to have so much money. 
Like oh there's only, gosh. there's only so far. I mean, obviously the cruise ships, we didn't even touch about that. Right. You just yeah. mentioned the one that yeah. launched, they have two more cruise ships coming down the line. Um, the company just does phenomenal. So this is why I'm all bullish. This is what I'm watching at Disney. I'm bullish to the upside. I would be a buyer here. This is my opinion. Keep that in mind. Everybody needs to take, um, take it all with a grain of salt, just presenting, presenting you with the facts and what we're watching. Um, Josh, you can go ahead and take that, that slide down. Um, and that I, I just wanted to ask you, is, do you have any questions about Disney that I could answer real quick? Um, so actually, yeah. Like if you think about back to that ESPN spinoff, right. Um, why would Disney do that? What's like, what's, what, what is that big thing? that's like, I mean, I think I read they like pay down debt, obviously, but like, why would Disney be like, yeah, ESPN has gone. We have now like this cool new opportunity. Like why would Disney do that? So to spin off ESPN, you're pretty much saying, I mean, it's the same XBO logistics. They did spin off. You, you kind of break that out. Um, pretty much what you're doing is you're just creating the additional value for the shareholder, right? So they're saying, you know, obviously ESPN pays billions and billions of dollars for license rights to NBA and NFL and all these other things. Um, and especially seeing more competition between Apple Plus and Amazon as they're trying to get into sports rights as well. But the money that you can command for ESPN Plus, like we haven't even, you know, football season starts here in what, two weeks? I mean, you haven't even seen the massive amount of subscribers sign ups for that yet um, that you're going to see. It's going to create so much money. And then if ESPN spins out, then boom, great. Unlock that value by then turning around and having them pay a dividend while the rest of the Disney company doesn't need to. Um, you can get a little fancy with the, the numbers underneath it is pretty much my answer. Um, that makes sense. But I just don't, I mean, it'd be, it's so much easier for them to just keep it in the company take all of that money, that revenue and put it into, like I said, just paying down debt for the overall company. Um, and then you just own Disney stock. I mean, I don't know. Dan Lowe, man. I, I wonder, I want, maybe you know this answer. What's their, uh, you know, how, how levered are they right now uh, from an uh, analyzed adjusted EBITDA basis? Do you know? Uh, not off the top of my head. I can tell you, I mean, they're, they've, I mean, think about this. The company also have massive amounts of land um that will never go anywhere which is also why i've loved talking about disney and having brad thomas on today because obviously he is the reit guy um and when i think about real estate i think about him and his service i read on alpha but i mean just, i'm looking at seeking alpha here i mean uh total debt most recent quarter 51 billion cash on hand 12.96 billion um the consumer will continue to pay for, I mean, the Altman Z score is 2.46. And usually when it's around three, it's an easy way for you to kind of judge if a company has any uh, financial issues. If it gets mm -hmm. closer to one or zero, they might be more likely to go bankrupt or declare bankruptcy. Um, so there's different metrics like that. But I mean, you think about Disney and they're just like, they own the land, they built out the theme parks, those theme parks aren't going anywhere. This isn't Six Flags. This isn't the, the creepy New Orleans, uh, right, I think right, it was Six right. Flags, right? That actually shut down. It's just like, mm -hmm. okay, now they're gone. Like, no, people go to Disney. They're strategically placed. And not, even just, not just that, but it's like, when I was thinking about this yesterday, I was just like reflecting on how many Disney adults do I know? You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not just like, let's take our kids to Disney. Let's go to the movies. It's like, I am a adult who is in my 30s that like just goes to Disney for my own vacation. Like, and that's a thing. That's, that's entirely Dude, a thing. You have no idea. When I worked in those theme parks, the amount of, so I was, as I mentioned, a performer. So I interacted with a lot of too. guests at the theme park. And man, when you met some of them and the way they freak out and like they're, they, they completely throw everything out the window. Like 
I, I have been kissed by women <laughs> oh, that are like 50 oh. plus years old. And you're kind of standing there on set and you're just like, I don't know what to do. And they teach you, they try to teach you obviously. Um, but people just go nuts, man. It's like they're kids again. And that's the Disney brand. And that's like this Disney euphoria. And it's like, we, I saw people that were just like, Disney got me through the toughest times in my life, whether it was when they were kids, whether they're Midwest or like going through a divorce or whatever, like, and they always go back to Disney. And it's like, when you build a brand with that level of emotional connection to the consumer, you're set, right? Oh, yeah. Like, oh yeah, you're completely set. Um, so that's why I'm overall bullish on it, man. I, I, we can talk about Disney stories for days. I got a ton of them, but like I mentioned, Brad Thomas is with us today. He is in the back. I would love to actually invite him on screen now and have him join the conversation with us so we can start discussing REITs. Um, if you're watching today, which we see all of you are here, go ahead and leave us a question for Brad. We will ask him here live what your question is, um, whether you're considering maybe investing in REITs yourself or maybe you haven't pulled the trigger and you're kind of wondering, why have I not? yet what do i need to know about reads what's the best read to look at right now um we're just like we're ready to dive in with uh brad here so brad thanks for joining us today welcome to stock market live it's good to have you here it's great to be here and i've learned a lot so this is uh very educational great job ah, thank you thank you so I'm going to get this started because obviously we have people joining us on social media. We have people joining us on YouTube. We have people joining us on Zoom. Um, REITs, for the people that don't know what REITs are, why are they favorable, favorable for investors? And, and what's the advantage of owning a REIT over going out and just buying real estate yourself? Sure. Well, I guess the one word answer is income. I mean, I think that is uh, probably the one, one primary reason uh, to own real estate investment trust. Um, um, you know, REITs are forced by law to pay out at least 90% of their taxable income in the form of dividends. And, and most REITs, equity REITs, that is, pay out close to 100% of their taxable income. So th that, that's why these REITs uh, dividend yields are higher than ordinary C-Corps and many other alternatives in the marketplace. So I think one is income, high income. Um, and then I think the business model itself has been around quite a long time. Uh, in fact, almost 60 years, uh, REITs were formed in 1960. So unlike some of the other income-oriented sectors, such as MLPs, we cover those, or BDCs, we also cover those, uh, REITs have a much longer track record uh, and a much, much longer history. And so uh, I think that's another competitive advantage uh, for REITs. Of course, REITs are publicly traded. We like publicly traded REITs. By the way, I just published a piece on iRead on Alpha, I'll give myself one free commercial, comparing public REITs to private REITs. And this is a spectacular uh, article. It was actually written not by myself, but Chris Bulk. Chris was the former CEO of Store Capital. I has, asked him to write on Seeking Alpha when he was the CEO of Store, and he did. And now he is a contributor for us at iRead on Alpha. So comparing public and private REITs is a great, great article there. But um, look, I think mainly income and, again, the predictability of that income because REITs own real estate. Uh, and, of course, uh, the income is generated through lease contracts. So unlike most any other sector, um, you have um, lease contracts where you can see the visibility of that income stream over, over a period of time. So that's why you see earnings forecasts are much more reliable and analyst estimates are much more reliable for REITs because of these lease contracts. So, uh, and, and the last reason, 
I'll say is just performance. I mean, REITs have outperformed not every single year, but certainly over decades, uh, REITs have really uh, outperformed most other, any other uh, asset alternative. So uh, those are my primary reasons and I'm happy to give you more if we have time. I love it, Brad. Um, huge fan of your work, Austin Hankwitz, really nice to meet you. Um, so I'm over here from the perspective of someone that's learning about REITs, right? I have a general understanding of what a REIT is. And like you said, 90% of the taxable income gets paid out. But when I think about, okay, where do I want to buy? Or I guess, what's my first REIT? I'm thinking of all these different types of REITs. If it's uh, data centers, if it's the cell phone towers, if it's, you know, there's so many different types of, I guess, subcategories inside of this REIT industry. Do you have any ideas on maybe two or three of those that you're just really excited about or, or perhaps um, think are maybe operating in some sort of secular growth trend right now? Sure. I think one way to get started is um, to just look at the, what I think is the most boring property sector, but is the most reliable and predictable and repeatable, and that is the net lease sector. Um, and within the net lease sector, this simply means these are these are buildings that have uh, tenants with long duration lease contracts. So typically those lease contracts are 10 to 15 years. Um, a lot of retirees really gravitate to this sector because of that predictable income, but also because of the higher income. These REITs in the net lease sector, that is, they can pay out higher distributions. Uh, the payout ratios can be uh, higher because they don't have to deal with the, a lot of the expenses for some of the other REITs like office or self-storage that have more CapEx requirements, net lease don't. These are long-term leases. Um, and generally, um, generally, they're not all leased to investment grade tenants, but, but obviously you wanna have a stable tenant uh, in the portfolios. Now, the great thing about net lease is this industry and this sector has really expanded massively, even since I was a net lease developer myself for 20 years. So I built stores for Advanced Auto Parts and O'Reilly and- Oh, Walmart I read it. CBS, I read all about uh, Walmart. it. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually doing some of that now. Um, as well, but uh, I'm, I'm, it's all in my blood. But um, but yeah, so I think having uh, there's roughly 19 REITs now that are in our quote net lease coverage spectrum, and um, we also have gaming REITs. I did want to touch on that because you mentioned you're talking about Disney, which is really fascinating. Um, but we have a this Beachy, by the way, Beachy Properties. We first started covering that company just when they in, this, just when they went public. It was a spinoff from Caesars right after Caesars bankruptcy. The company is now completed its transformational merger with MGM Growth Properties. I just interviewed the CEO yesterday, uh, Ed Petoniak, for I Read on Alpha. You can come visit that video. We had a great, great uh, interview with him. And what's really interesting with Beachy is the company is the top performing S&P 500 um, uh, REIT uh, this year. I mean, they have just crushed it. And, um, and it was a great call by our, our REIT team. I want to give our, our team credit for that. Um, but we've watched the transformation of Beachy and their balance sheet and how they've been able to utilize their, their cost of capital and increase in their scale to really become an S&P 500. I think they're the, they, they became an S&P 500 faster than any other REIT in history. So that's an amazing story in itself. But to your point, Austin, there are many different ways to play the, the game. I think the simplest way to get started is to look at some of these net lease REITs. Now, Beachy today's uh, expensive. Um, I think we still have a maybe a, a slight buy on the company today, but shares are there's not a huge margin of safety there with Beachy. But there are other net lease REITs. Store Capital would be a good example of that that I think you can buy today at a much larger or wider margin of safety. And by the way, Berkshire Hathaway still has a position in that company, and so that certainly validates the the strength of Store Capital. 
Brad, I want to jump in here because I, I was, I'm so glad you brought up Vici, by the way, because obviously me and you, we've been talking about this company for well over a year, I think, from all the times we've, we've done videos together. Um, I see here on Seeking Alpha, I was, I was looking at the symbol page. Actually, I'll, I'll try to pull it up here in the Zoom as well so everybody can see it. Um, there seems to be a 4% short, 4.8% of the float is short. So what's the worry behind this company that people are thinking, uh, I mean, obviously you were talking about it, maybe the valuation's a little high right now, maybe it's just one of these quick little plays, but is there anything that investors should be worrying about when you talk about a company like Vici? Not at all. Now there are other companies that actually have legitimate short thesis, Vici doesn't. In fact, I asked the CEO yesterday, Ed Petoniak, um, you know, about uh, some of the biggest risks that, that uh, within the Vici model. And of course, you think about it, one of the really biggest risks was this black swan, the pandemic, right? I mean, this is where um, the company, much like the cruise lines and theaters, uh, we can touch on theaters too, because we have a sell-off today of EPR. You might want to check your screen or have your, your audience take a look at e what's going on with the EPR right now. Um, but Vici was able to go through the pandemic uh, with 100% rent collection. So I asked Ed yesterday, I said, Ed, um, you know, your, your other big risk that could potentially be, you know, this kind of catastrophic event um, is the water, the, the shortage of water in Las Vegas. They've got a majority of their portfolio in Las Vegas. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, media attention to the water, you know, water, uh, availability of water in Las Vegas. And Ed did a great job. I won't go into it in detail here. You know, again, we interviewed him for close to an hour talking about the availability of water and what they're do, utilizing to, you know, how they're going to manage or mitigate those, those potential risks. Um, but to answer your point, I'm not worried about any short, short position. Typically that's over an equity raise. Uh, you'll see more of a short position when, they, when they're issuing equity. Uh, I haven't seen any capital markets transaction lately with Vici other than the most latest transaction when they close with MGM. Um, but I'm not concerned about that. Now there are a couple other REITs that were really, um, uh, monitoring very closely that have substantial short positions. Those would be medical property trust. That's a higher yielding REIT. They certainly have a lot of tenant exposure. Um, I'm, I'm writing an article right now as we speak on innovative industrial property. They've also had a short thesis. Uh, and then the third one is, is digital realty, which is the data center you know, di giant. Uh, and we've got, uh, buy, by the way, we've got buys on all three of those companies. I own all three of those companies and including, including Vici. Um, but we've got digital realty, um, you know, being shorted over, over the hyperscalers, the fact that um, these data centers uh, do lease to hyperscalers. And the threat is that, you know, these fam Facebook, Amazon, and Google are going to own their own buildings and destroy mm -hmm. the business model for the data center reach, which is absolutely foolish. And we've debunked that quite a bit. So um, but th those are the short positions we're watching closely, but I'm not worried about Vici whatsoever. Well, I want to, I want to jump in. Why wouldn't, Facebook and Google and these companies, why wouldn't they own the properties that they're building their data centers in? That's a great question. You know, to answer that, another article uh, I wrote recently, or we wrote, was on Coles. Uh, we really debunked the whole concept, because you were talking about Disney earlier owning real estate. And really, if you look at Disney, Six Flags, a lot of these amusement parks, they don't need to own that real estate. It's, it's, it's not efficient for these companies. And this is, if you go into this Coles article, that I wrote. And Chris Volk, by the way, I want to give him credit because we wrote that one together. And Chris just came out with a book and he writes a lot of, a lot of the concepts in his book are, are, are the same content in these articles. But going back to this kind of this, this Coles analogy, 
Coles owns a ton of real estate. By the way, Target does too. I saw Target had a you know a little smackdown today on their on their on their uh, inventory. But you know, Target and Coles don't need to own real estate. It's more efficient for another landlord. It could be a REIT. REITs are an obvious example because they do have this cost advantage and scale advantage um, to do that. Uh, now, of course, C corps can no longer spin into REITs. I want to be clear there. So up until maybe I think it was 2016 or 17. Uh, you could take a C-Corp like a Target, like a Kohl's, and spend those assets or that real estate into a REIT, much like uh, Darden did with Four Corners Property Trust, much like Sears did with Seritage. Um, you can't do that now. Congress kind of closed that loophole, and I understand why they closed it. Otherwise, you'd, you'd have McDonald's REIT and every, every Burger King REITs and Papa John's REITs. And, you know. So I understand why they closed that loophole, but um, um, Kohl's could definitely should should sell that real estate. And of course, another company we cover, the franchise group, ticker FRG, uh, actually did try to buy Kohl's. And so the, 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 what I'm getting at here is these companies just don't need to own real estate. Disney doesn't need to own it. They should sell it. And by the way, Vici mm. would be a primetime buyer for Six Flags. Um, they own other experiential properties like Great Wolf, which is another kind of competitor, I guess you could say, for Disney and Six Flags. So, um, and, and I would encourage you to read the article on Kohl's. Uh, where Chris and I really explain in great detail why these uh, these these corporations don't need to have that heavy balance heavy uh, real estate assets on their balance sheet. If they're if they're earning uh, um, uh, if their rate on return is higher is 12, 13, 14 percent, they can take that money and redeploy it back into their business much more efficiently. So a lot of the value has been destroyed with Coles because of the fact they own the real estate. They could have utilized that much more efficiently by efficiently by running their business and being a tenant, not, not a landlord for themselves. I'm excited to read that. I'm, I'm really going to dive deep into that. I appreciate that, Brad. My next question now, kind of piggybacking on what, what Daniel was talking about with like, you know, the short position and like things of that nature. Um, when someone is beginning to look into REITs to invest in, what are some red flags that they should be, you know, keeping their eye on? Is it a payout ratio? Is it, is it some sort of vacancy? Like what are some big, just like, Hey, this is, bad news bears for REITs if, if, if these three things are happening? Well, again, I, I hate to you know, be the commercial for iRead on Alpha, but we spend a lot of time with management. <laughs> I interview CEOs twice a week. And you know that in itself, I get, I get our subscribers inside the boardroom. And just like we're doing here, you can see the CEO and see these management, management team face-to-face and see how they react, not only about their company, but about their competition. I always like to see you know, talk about competition. Sometimes they don't want to talk about competition. I understand. But I think management is key. The title of my new book, The Intelligent Read Investor Guide, the last chapter is called Management Matters. And that's why I included, purposely included that chapter in there, because that is, that is a key. And we, we look real, really hard at, at, at the management. But also, I would say, in, in the article we wrote today, comparing public and private REITs, or, or Chris wrote, um, he, he made a good point in there. And Warren Buffett stresses this a lot. You know, buy the company, not the stock. You really have to understand the dynamics of the company and what the company does and how the company is going to produce profits and grow their dividends. So I think dividend growth is key. Now, Austin, you're right. You know, one of the points we always look for is those, are those payout ratios, because if they've got they don't have a, a safe payout ratio, you know, they're not going to increase that dividend. So certainly dividend growth is a key. That's what's going to drive shareholder returns. It's, this is nothing new. It's been going on for years and years and years, going all the way back to Benjamin Graham. He recognized the power of dividend growth and how that is the primary catalyst that's going to generate 
uh, the best total return prospects for any company or any stock. So balance sheet obviously ties into that. Without a healthy balance sheet, you're not going to grow that dividend. Um, we look at these rating, rate, uh, rating agencies. We look at all the, the major credit rating agencies. If they don't have ratings, we try to apply some type of shadow rating to that company. Um, so we do cover the, some of those small companies as well. But um, I think just dissecting the entire company, it's a long list of things. But I think you're right. The dividend safety is really paramount to the to the success of that company. Brad, can I ask you too? I mean, you're, we're talking about the companies themselves and how they operate, but when it comes to like the macro environment, right? Like when when I think about real estate, when I think other people think about real estate, we think about interest rates and we think about how that affects the the residential real estate side of things and how you know it's slowing down the demand and everything else. Obviously, these companies have to be feeling some sort of effect as well. Um, are we going to see REITs start to just kind of stop with the growth expansion? Are they going to double down on just focusing on trying to raise those rents? Like what, what are we seeing with how macroeconomics affects the REIT space? Not at all. In fact, I've got some, some news hot off the press. And this, by the way, this, the information I'm going to give you is from NAREIT, which is the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust. So in the second quarter of this year, 2022, we saw record FFO, FFO, funds from operation, which is earnings growth of 19.6 billion. That's a 9.8% increase from the last quarter. Nearly 84% of REITs reported increased FFO or earnings year over year. And almost every sector achieved quarter over quarter FFO growth, including lodging. Of course, lodging, we knew where it was you know, last year and uh, we're up 129%, so 1.3 billion. Self-storage REITs rose almost 15% to 1.5 billion. Data center FFO rose 5.8%. Industrial FFO rose 4% to 1.8 billion. We're also seeing NOI growth, $28.5 billion. That's an all-time high in the REIT sector, which is 3.9% higher than the last quarter and 9.9% higher than the one year ago. 92% of REITs reported an increased NOI from one year ago. So I think that's number one, is earnings are continuing to advance across the board. Not all sectors, not all REITs, but those I mentioned, I said 80, the statistic was 84% have increased earnings. We're also seeing the uh, improved balance sheets. And, you know, I get this question a lot about, you know, how are REITs going to impact, be impacted on rising rates and, and all in, you know, recession. And, you know, that, I get it, that's a daily question, right? But I think you've got to consider that, that balance sheets are in much shape, better shape. So again, uh, this is NAREIT statistics. Debt to book assets fell more than 37 basis points to 49.5%. Debt to market assets remain near, near historic lows at 33.1%. Interest coverage at 6.1 times. So REIT balance sheets in, in, in general are in extremely good shape. Earnings are continuing to grow. Um, obviously, every sector has its own dynamics. Uh, so we watch all those sectors very closely. And really to build a well-balanced portfolio, you really need to have that diversification. Although net lease is a pretty stable asset class, you're not going to see some of the growth that you're going to see with some of the technology players like data centers, cell towers, even logistics, which really fall under that technology umbrella. So I think it's, it, I think it's just more innings ahead here. Um, again, the man, most management teams have done a fairly good job at, at, at maintaining discipline within their capital, uh, capital stacks. And I think you're going to continue to see that acceleration. So we're really happy about where we're positioned right now with REITs. And I would, anybody you know, watching this or listening to this, recommend owning you know, some REITs, more than one, 
you certainly need to have that diversification. But uh, I think now's the time. If you don't own any, you should definitely be uh, adding adding REITs to your portfolio. Brad, I was told by Daniel that you're an absolute expert in REITs. And after hearing that and just having a conversation with you, like, oh my gosh, dude. Awesome. He's the man. Awesome stuff. Yeah, he's the man. And, and I, I was going to ask, though, one of my final questions here is like you just said, like diversify into different REITs. So if I'm trying to do that through an ETF, do you have perhaps a couple of REIT ETFs that come to mind that, that someone should begin exploring? Sure. And I will say, you know, for the record, because um, I've had this question a lot, uh, I'm getting ready to launch a REIT index. Uh, it's not an ETF yet. You can invest in it. Um, I've been working on this for a number of years. And frankly, I want to give Seeking Alpha credit for getting me to this point where I've actually created a you know, 100,000 followers, I never would have imagined that I would be sitting on the stage with you guys and, you know, have that kind of following. So, um, but yeah, we're, we're getting ready to launch our own index, which will be a diversified product, uh, unlike any other. Uh, but you're right. I mean, ETFs, for some investors, ETFs do make sense. Um, you know, ETFs are great because, you know, you, a lot of investors don't have the time or, or the money or combination thereof um, to really go out and build a, a balanced portfolio and spend the time on this. So, there's certain certainly number of ETS. Now the big the big bad wolf, of course, is Vanguard VNQ, Vanguard Real Estate, um, and that's just your your large. I forget how many names are in the VNQ over 150. I think it's it's a market cap weighted index, and so you're going to get you know the good, the bad, and the ugly, like a lot of the bigger you know uh, ETFs. The other thing that we've seen over, really over the last several years is uh, a number of the specialized names. Um, uh, Hoya Capital, who um, is on Seeking Alpha, he's got two ETF products. One's a specialty kind of a housing play, Homes, H-O-M-Z. If you like housing, that potentially might be a good alternative. He's got another one that's a more diversified, higher yielding strategy as well. Um, but, you know, it's not hard to, to really, you know, if you're on Seeking Alpha, and, and I'm really speaking to the Seeking Alpha audience, since this is, our, this is you know, the platform we're on, um, I would say, look, you know, it's not hard to go build your own portfolio. And, um, you know, we certainly do that at iRead on Alpha. Um, I would say, you know, try to, if, if you're not going to own, you know, at least say 10 REITs, uh, you probably should go that ETF route. Um, and, but, you know, if you can get yourself up to 10 and really study these companies, not these stocks, but understand these companies that you're investing in, um, and we can certainly help you do that. And I think you, you're, you're very, you know, why, why go that ETF route? So it really depends on your time. But I know, the, I know the base on Seeking Alpha pretty well. And I do think that a large majority of the, 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 uh, the viewers are very capable of building their own portfolios with all of this research, all of the tools that Seeking Alpha provides. So I'm not, I have nothing against ETFs. Um, but I think if you've got the time and, and to do this and the discipline to do this, then you can actually build your own REIT portfolio without the use uh, of an ETF. So Brad here, I'm looking, I pulled up VNQ here on Seeking Alpha. I'm sure you can see it as well. It seems like it has 172 holdings in it currently. Um, but when we look at an ETF like this and you see VNQ with its largest position being Vanguard Real Estate 2 Index, I mean, what are, what are they kind of doing there when they invest in themselves? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, they kind of, that's a way they kind of balance their, their, that's the, how they balance their portfolio. I don't ignore that, but obviously below that you see there, they basically take the, the same holdings within that portfolio and make that their largest tenant. So I don't know the actual, that would be a good question for somebody to answer. I'd like to know that answer as well. Um, but I do know they've got, that's kind of a strategy they have that I think is part of a more of a balancing kind of thing. I don't know exactly their, their reasoning behind that, but I, I've noticed that too. And 
we usually kind of bypass that and look at the first holding. So if you look at the big the big names, the market cap names, you're going to have you know Prologis and um, you know um, you know public storage and all of those. In fact, if you go to all these market cap, we've done kind of an overview of all the big ETFs. They own all of them on the same names. You know, it's it's all you know Prologis and and American they may, Tower. Some of them yeah. may be number one or four, but there's not a whole lot of differentiation. So I, I definitely think the product that we're launching here very soon is going to be certainly unique. Um, I'll give you a hint. I mean, it's the title of our book is The Intelligent REIT Investor. Uh, we think that uh, it's all about being a smart investing strategy. And I think that's the, that's the strategy that we're going for with our, uh, with our ET, uh, ETF products. Amazing. And yeah, I mean, I obviously you have my endorsement. I'll endorse you all day. I have learned so much from you and your writing um, over on I Read on Alpha. I, I don't mind you pushing it uh, to our audience as much as you want because it is beneficial. I mean, we're talking about these REITs that could be a great addition to your portfolio. And it's definitely uh, worth finding the ones that you watch, kind of like Vici and some of the other ones we mentioned today. Um, now, Brad, before we let you get out of here, because we're almost out of time, got to ask you, because it's a fan favorite and, and I'm sure Rob wants to know, and I'm sure Agnes wants to know, and Alfonso wants to know, and Charlie wants to know, everybody's tuning in today wants to know, can you share with us maybe a, a quick little story of either a trade or an investment that went really well for you, or maybe one that turned out to go against your thesis and just kind of give us an insight on that? Boy, I mean, um, you know, I've had, I've, you know, I've had some good and bad. I mean, I've hit a few home runs and I've struck out a lot. Uh, I prefer, I can give you a lot of those stories where I hit doubles and triples and, and singles. Um, but I have hit some home runs and I've, I've struck out too. Um, look, I mean, you know me by now. I mean, I'm not a market timer. I'm a value investor. I, I, I buy and hold for the long term. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, but I would think in terms of like some of the, some of our, the big hits were probably Power Reef last year. You know, it's a nano cap name, PW. And, you know, we, I'm, I'm actually finishing up this, I think I mentioned earlier, this, in this cannabis uh, series. Uh, I'm going to call it uh, separating the weed from the chaff, by the way. Hopefully, hopefully the Seeking Alpha editors will let me use that. Um, and, um, but, you know, so cannabis has been interesting. There's a lot of volatility. So if you, if you, if you time it right, we're not market timers, but if you time it right, uh, which we did with Power Reed, um, we were up 170% with that company last year. Now they've lost most of it, most of it back this year. I just talked to the CEO on Monday, uh, and actually shares were up 15% yesterday, not because I wrote about it. I don't know what caused the company to go up, but it's such a volatile name. So I could, I can give you a lot of those where, you know, it was uh, probably, you know, I'm going to probably claim that it's probably luck more than skill, but that was certainly a great pick for us, Power Reed, and uh, they were uncovered. There was maybe maybe one analyst covering the company, and, um, you know, that one did really well. Um, I think there's quite a few that I could say that just haven't performed as well. Um, one that one that I'll, I'll mention, and, I, and I'm getting a lot of a lot of the trolls uh, uh, have have uh, pointed this out, uh, rightfully so. Is Tanger Outlets? You know, Tanger was one of those companies that was a dividend aristocrat, and um, this the only outlet sector, um, you know, REIT out there. They, we 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 actually uh, categorize them under the mall sector um, because they have some of the same tenants as malls. Um, but we were we've been bullish with Tanger a long time, but kind of the perfect storm lined up for Tanger to have to cut that dividend. I mean, they were obviously their dividend their payout ratio was close. Um, or before the pandemic, it was, in other words, it's very tight, um, but we felt like they would maintain, they were, we, we felt like they would maintain their, their, uh, their investment grade rating. 
Um, and then, um, you know, obviously there's retail was struggling before COVID. I'm sure you know that. And uh, just e-commerce and the impacts uh, of, of digital. Um, but I've always felt like the outlet business model is, is a proven business model. It's not like the theater model. By the way, I mentioned EPR is down today substantially because one of their tenants has reported um, potential, I don't think bankruptcy was out there, but potential financing sources, which could imply bankruptcy. Um, but, you know, theater sector is different than, than, than outlets. And so we've hung in there with the outlet sector, although, you know, it was a tough time. And most, a lot of REITs, especially retail REITs, really got torched in theaters uh, and malls uh, in COVID. Um, but, but Tanger has really bounced back. So uh, if you look at, you know, our recommendations with Tanger, yeah, I mean, we, we had some people that didn't like us during the pandemic because we, you know, we, we felt like that business model was going to, um, was still going to survive. And it has. I was at a Tanger outlet um, last week. And I'll say, you know, this, I can't say a whole lot, but I'm actually considering, um, I haven't signed a deal yet. And if I do, I'll, I'll let everybody know. But I'm considering actually being a tenant in an outlet uh, concept. Um, I'm looking at it now as a possibility uh, in this rollout that we're doing. So the business, the outlet business model is a very sustainable business model. Um, it does have risks to it, but we found out through the recovery in COVID that the outdoor sector has performed really well, and Tanger's portfolio has, ex has performed extremely well. So it, it was a, it was a, yeah, I guess you could say it was a bad call during COVID, but it's turned out to be a really good call coming out of COVID. So um, again, we, we're still doing the same thing. We're looking at fundamentals. Um, they're always going to win. And there are companies like EPR that we avoided. And I'm glad we avoided because they, they underperformed before COVID. They underperformed during COVID. And as it relates today, they're, they're underperforming today. So those fundamentals are key to us. It's not that we have some kind of magic, you know, crystal ball. It's just we spend a lot of time looking at the balance sheets and income statements, meeting with management teams and, and our team in general. We have weekly calls with our team just talking about what are the risks with these companies. And and because uh, we, we take a lot of, we put a lot of effort in, in our business. And uh, hopefully you'll you'll see that if you uh, come check us out at iREIT on Alpha. Yeah. Wow. Brad, you got to You've been very gracious with your time today. We obviously love having you here. We want to talk to you all day about this, but I know. You got to get back to work and get back to all those investors in your team. So I appreciate you taking the time to spend with us today and, and walk uh, our audience through all those different names and, and the concerns that you were talking about and everything that we've covered today. Really appreciate it. Sounds good. Thank you both. You, take care, Brad. Bye-bye. Oh, what a guy. Incredible. Oh, my god. What a gosh. guy. Man, he, I, I kid you not, ever since uh, I started reading his work on Ivory, I mean, because I didn't even know what REITs were until I started working at Seeking Alpha. And then I was like, yeah. oh, real estate investment trust. And then like understanding, like you look at a, like a company like Vici that he was talking about and you see like the stock prices at like $35 today for a share. And then like a year ago, it was like 25. And so you're like, okay, like maybe it's not, it's not a, a growth. Like I'm not expecting the share price to go up to hundred dollars or anything, but that dividend. And that's when I was like, It's oh, so funny you guys mentioned that. Cause I, I get it. Yeah, I learned about REITs, uh, I want to say 2019, 2020, around that COVID time. And the only two REITs that I own right now are Realty Income Corporation, ticker O, and Vici. VC. Well, I didn't know how to say it back then. V-I-C-I, right? Vici, um, yeah. Yeah, but those are the only two ones I, I didn't know that's what you guys were talking about. And I was like, oh, yeah, that one's been a rock star position. That's so fun. Yeah. Incredible, man. What it's is steady, so, so especially exciting. as Vegas, Vegas reopened and Vici just, it took off, man. That company is just crushing it out in the Vegas uh, Strip. So 
Um, obviously, a couple things we want to cover real quick before we get on out of here. Yes, I'm still bullish on Disney. <laughs> I'm not going to let that go. Um, obviously, I love the company. I can talk all day about it. I mean, I've, I've read book after book. I've read Bob Iger's book. I've read the book Disney War. I've read the book on Walt Disney when he founded the company. I mean, I am a complete Disney nerd in that regard of knowing the company like the back of my hand. Um, but actually, Josh, if you don't mind, I know you're still back there. We have a link that we want to share with everybody uh, here at Seeking Alpha. We have what is called a user panel where you get insights into seeing what our team is working on behind the scenes. They might even give you a little beta action and add those things to your account uh, in exchange for some of your feedback. So, uh, Josh, if you could drop the link in the chat, I'm going to get it up over here on social media as well. If you are interested in joining the Seeking Alpha user panel, go ahead and fill out, fill out that form right there, and the team will get over to you within probably 24 or 48 hours. Um, open up that dialogue, that conversation, and you get kind of insights into, uh, you know, things like ETF grades are being worked on. You didn't hear it from me, but Ooh. they're being worked on, right? Ooh. So obviously, um, a lot of great stuff coming down the pipeline. Obviously, Alpha Picks has rolled out recently. They might want your feedback on that. Uh, and if you want to know what that is, you can head over to SeekingAlpha.com. There are links to that on site. And let's see, what else am I missing? Um, oh, by the way... We're getting turned in here because making money off Disney, our show's getting a little upgraded. Stay little tuned upgraded, for that. We're Stay doing tuned it. for that. We're doing Obviously, it. we appreciate everybody tuning in with us today. Uh, the video will be replayable. It'll be up on YouTube. It'll be on our LinkedIn. It will also, it's coming to a podcast app near you. So once we launch that podcast, that launch that podcast, uh, we're going to invite you all to subscribe to that as well. Leave us some ratings, leave us some comments, reviews. Josh, go ahead and throw up that last slide for me. And then if you want to get in contact with us, obviously you can get Brad Thomas. I read on Alpha. Go check him out on SeekingAlpha.com. He is very communicative. He will answer your questions as well. Austin, you can be reached on LinkedIn and Twitter. I can be reached on LinkedIn, LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, so if you've got comments, if you've got questions, if you have a stock uh, that you want us to dive deep into, let us know. Maybe Tell we'll take us. the consideration from it. the audience. Yeah. I love that. It'd be so much fun. If you fun. have a stock in your portfolio, actually, I want to challenge. Somebody give us a stock that we can do for a future episode here in a week or two. Give us a stock that you might have in your portfolio or a stock that you are considering buying potentially. And Austin and I will do some heavy lifting work for you. We will dive into earnings. We will dive into the management. We will look into this company for you. So, um, go ahead. You can leave that in the comments below this video. You can leave it to us on YouTube and comment. You can put it here in the Zoom chat, whatever it is. Um, and that's all I have from my side, I believe. Austin, anything from you before we get on out of here? Nothing from me. Really excited to be back on here. Last week was, it was a sad week, man. We couldn't do this, but now we're back. We're rocking and rolling. And we're going to have an awesome stock suggested by the audience that we're going to dive deep into either this weekend or early next week. And it's going to be an awesome episode next week. Thanks, everyone, for yep. tuning in. And we'll I see you. Ooh, get a little music in. Ooh, okay, okay, right. Daniel. <laughs> um, we'll see you guys next Wednesday, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thanks for tuning in and hanging out with us today. We'll see you again. Josh, take us out of here.